Expo, we thought, we're like, what is the most radical, audacious thing we could possibly think of to do as a DAO? And we ended up coming up with the idea of what if we got some of the 3 billion NBA fans from all over the world to pitch in and maybe buy a stake in an NBA team? Welcome to the Sporting Crypto Podcast, where we talk to leaders in sports and Web3 about their journeys in this weird world. And joining me on episode four is Flex Chapman, co-founder of Krausehaus. Flex, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. We were joking that we've done this before. Like, I know. A hundred times. If we can just take what we talked about at dinner and just move <laughs> it over, it's perfect. Or any call we've had or anything <laughs> yeah, exactly. like that. Why don't you tell us a bit more about yourself, your journey up until this point? Yeah, absolutely. So born in the uh, in the D.C. area, actually got my career started in New York doing the whole Wall Street thing, actually. So decided it wasn't for me only a couple of years into it. And um, actually went the self-taught programming route. So I've been a like engineer by trade for, for quite a while. So I got introduced to crypto very much from the technical side of things, right? Like this idea of smart contracts and kind of a decentralized Internet was really interesting. Uh, but sat on the sidelines for majority of the, like I watched DeFi summer roll around the NFT boom and always kind of thought about jumping in, but stayed on the sidelines, you know, um, to keep the metaphorically stay on the sidelines. And I was like, okay, once I heard about DAOs, I was like, wait, this is really interesting, right? It takes all the crypto primitives that I've grown to love, like NFTs, DeFi tokens, all these things, and kind of adds this like human community centric element and design to it, um, as the rapper. And for those who don't know, the uninitiated, how would you explain a DAO in simple terms? Yeah, there's a lot of definitions floating out there all the way from very complex, which I'll, I'll spare you, um, all the way to fairly mundane. But um, I think it's, imagine just like a online collective with a shared bank account, right? So if you take something like the NBA subreddit, for example, or any sort of group online, imagine you could give them kind of their own microeconomy where they can make decisions and governance and, and run governance by themselves, um, but also deploy that capital to go make things happen, right? So I remember joining like a online growth hackers group, right? And I was surprised by, they were always sharing these ideas and interesting concepts. And I kept thinking, I'm like, why don't they take some capital and actually mm. deploy and assign it to go make things happen? And then maybe have some royalty back to the, back to the community or things like that. And I was like, Internet collectives are so strong, as you've seen. I mean, from the time we were growing up, we were in forums and discussing yeah. things. And like, I think DAOs are a very similar concept, but give them superpowers by having them have access to capital and being able to vote on proposals on their own. That's awesome. And then why don't you tell again the audience, you figuring out DAOs are the thing you want to spend your energy into up until this point. Yeah, so kind of like I was saying earlier, I was like, I watched all these primitives start to kind of I don't want to say rise and fall, but they've kind of all operated independently, right? Like NFTs were around and, and DeFi, and there was, of course, some some crossover. But when I saw DAOs, it's like, okay, let's take all the excitement and the inertia from some of these things and kind of add this community component to them. And so uh, my co-founder and I were, were talking about like, all right, DeFi is interesting, but we're not sure. Obviously, there's NFT groups popping up that kind of evolve around a DAO and group decision-making. But we thought we we're like, what is the most radical, audacious thing we could possibly think of to do as a DAO? And we ended up coming up with the idea of what if we got some of the 3 billion NBA fans from all over the world to pitch in and maybe buy a stake in an NBA team? 
And we knew it was as crazy as it sounds even right now. Um, but we thought there's actually a realistic possibility that the way things are going with online decision-making and kind of giving these collective superpowers and the, the, the innovation that the NBA has for fan engagement and new ownership rules that, you know, maybe in five, 10 years, this is a realistic possibility. So why not start now? So we were very intrigued by DAOs and as builders, both coming from software, we were like, let's figure out something audacious, but also let's get inside information of some of the problems with DAOs. And I'm sure we'll get into it. That's no short list of, of, of issues. But we said, hey, if we start this, maybe we'll get some inside info on maybe some tooling to build, right? Mm-hmm. So we were kind of like using it also as, as a growth hack to maybe, maybe build some of our, our own tooling. And I remember like one or two weeks into it, we get people from Coinbase, Shopify, Uniswap, like these really powerful collectives saying, hey, this needs to happen. So I remember calling up Commodore, who's my, who's my co-founder, and saying, hey, DAO tooling's great, but like, let's go buy an NBA team. <laughs> let's go do this. Uh, so, so yeah, and then the, the rest is history. Like, we'll, we, we look back on it right now and just kind of see the journey and just kind yeah. of mind blown. Let's dig into that journey. Like, yeah. give us a chronological timeline from the point where you're like, let's go do this to raising funds mm-hmm. to the point where you're actually like name-checked as one of the potential buyers, the Phoenix Suns, which to me was crazy, right? Because yeah. I remember, again, hands up here, like I remember reading the white paper and being like, I don't think this is ever going to happen, but these guys have thought this through. Mm. And even if it doesn't happen, they'll do some cool shit. Well, actually the story probably, uh, I think this is helpful context, the story actually started back when we were in third grade. So that's like maybe <laughs> seven or eight years old. Commodore and I were in the same class. I don't really remember how you make friends when you're that young, but I, I remember I had a Charlotte Hornets backpack. He had a Chicago Bulls hat and we're like, let's be friends, dude. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that that simple. Um, so, you know, we grew up playing basketball together and loving the sport. And we always joke around like, you know, around like seventh or eighth grade, you start, the reality starts to set in that you probably won't be playing in the NBA, right? You get that first dose of reality. So then your next thing is like, well, what if you owned a team? Like, that's pretty cool, right? Uh, and then you also quickly find out that considering you have to have a net worth in the billions in this case, that's also pretty difficult to do. In fact, more statistically improbable than playing in the NBA is, yeah. is owning a team, right? <laughs> so you kind of get that second punch uh, of reality. But we thought, hey, there's actually something really interesting here is like is thousands and thousands of people like take the concept of wisdom of the crowd. Like are thousands of people all with concentrated effort and using their own kind of mix of hard and soft skills to go do this, is that equal to maybe one owner or maybe a front office? Like, we think so, maybe. Um, so we might as well might as well try it. So um, you asked about our NFT sale. Uh, I think we were operating for maybe like seven or eight months or so. Those were kind of like the glory days that we saw. It's like, there was just so much energy. We didn't have a treasury, but everyone was just kind of, we were constantly on Discord. I remember some of our our voice channel conversations were like four or five hours <laughs> digging into like, wait, how do we actually do this? Like, yeah. like, is there, I don't want to say attack vectors, but like, are there, are there dimensions which we can help out with front office that make us more, uh, more of a likely candidate to even, to even get in front of owners. And I remember thinking like, imagine if we spoke to an NBA owner, like, can you mm. imagine? So we decided, okay, there's a lot of talent here. How do we retain them? How do we engage them? And so we decided to do a, um, a mirror crowdfund. I don't know if you're familiar with the mm-hmm. um, platform mirror, but it's great. We launched, we set a initial goal of about 200 ETH. Um, we hit that pretty quickly. I want to say within like, you know, 12, 13 minutes or so. 
Uh, and then we ended up selling out of the total collection, raising a thousand ETH, which at the time ETH was near all time highs. So I want to say like 4.5 or 4.6 uh, million in total. Wow. And then we were very clear in kind of the documentation for the crowdfund that this isn't necessarily like, if you guys know with recent valuations, that that doesn't cut it to buy an NBA team. Um, <laughs> not even a smidge. Not even a little bit, right? <laughs> so we're saying this is not to go purchase any team, actually. This is to engage people and figure out exactly how to go do this. Because I think what gave Kraushaus a lot of velocity out of the gates was that this has never been done before. And every single person had a kind of a different idea how we could go about this. You got the kind of the top-down models, like, hey, how do we... How do we get all 3 billion NBA fans in the world to give us $1, right? Like that was a mode of thinking on one side of the spectrum. The other side was, hey, why don't we pick a team, get involved in local community, right? Do charitable work, start doing pro bono stuff, maybe analytics, maybe scouting for the team, meet front office, you know, develop the relationship and maybe go bottoms up. And the best part of that is like, none of those are right, but also none of those are wrong. Mm. So we're like, hey, why don't we use the money to experiment and to grow uh, and figure out actually how we go do this? So that's that's what mostly we use the the money for is is paying projects, paying contributors, and it's decentralized, right? So anyone with an idea of saying, hey, I think there's a, a really good opportunity to go do X. Here's where I think the value is. Here's where I think the upside is. Let's go do it. They can submit a proposal, any token holder, and then it gets voted on by the community. Yeah. And so you've got the NFT raise mm-hmm. and the token sale. So they're actually one in the same. Got it. Uh, so Mirrors, kind of how they structured their crowdfund is that there was a, a one ETH to 1,000 native token exchange rate. Mm-hmm. So if you put in one ETH to the crowdfund, you got 1,000 cross in return. And the NFT is purely access, right? Mm-hmm. That gives you access to the Discord, gives you access to uh, have conversations, get into some of our events, things like that. But our token is purely governance. It's fully illiquid. At this point, and so it's used to just vote on proposals. Yeah, that's the only speculative side of it. And to be honest with you, that makes a ton of sense. Like, why would there need to be? It doesn't doesn't need to be. And so I think what's really valuable about about the token is that you see so many people work into their proposal compensation to earn Kraus instead of doing purely like uh, kind of a a monetary gain in compensation. They're like, no, I actually want to input my effort to get more say in decision-making in the DAO, which is actually a really, a really fascinating concept. Like imagine- It's a lot of validation as well, right? Because like this person may never financially get anything from that token, but it's a token that says you get more governance in the say of this decentralized community. Absolutely. And that's, that's a big deal to a lot of people because I think, I think forward thinking, right? Like what could that mean right now? It's like, you know, should we bring on this engineer to do a three-week project? Doesn't sound that exciting, right? But in the future, that could mean, you know, are you helping with roster setting, right? Mm-hmm. Are you helping with what sponsors should go in the stadium, right? Those are kind of more high-impact decisions. Not sure when or where that that time will be, but I think a lot of people are, are looking that far ahead and including Kraus in their compensation, which is really exciting. And, and you guys didn't really rush that because, you know, Kraus were around for a while, mm-hmm. you know, either self-funded presumably or, or non-paid and then yeah. going for that kind of shit we think we've got something here let's go raise the capital yeah and it's crazy to think like the guys that are raising that capital as in like contributing that capital are also part of the governance for that sure some, to, the, to the most extent I'm sure there's some people that have supported out of their, their passion and they've got a few tokens but they're not involved in the day-to-day or the week-to-week but that's a really interesting concept yeah absolutely and 
it's funny, the people that contributed the most and were there since day one are still some of the most active because um, they just believed in it from uh, f- from day one. But you're right. We actually, so this is also peak bull market, which yeah. is which is important context. So like people were spinning up discords and Twitter accounts and next thing you know, raising <laughs> millions. Yeah. Off, but this is like all time highs, right? But we intentionally held off, right? Like we want to cultivate a really solid foundation of a community. We want to make sure that if we do an NFT sale, like, like, why are we doing it? Why do we have a token? And I think once we hit that critical mass of, like I said, we had people coming from, you know, VPs of product from Shopify, early engineers at Coinbase that were like, I want to spend my free time pushing this mission forward. Because I think a key thing here is that, again, as a sports fan, you and I know, right? It's a 24-7 lifestyle. And that the idea that I could have some sort of input into my favorite team in any capacity is it's tugging on the heartstrings of every kid who's ever loved sport. And so I'm kind of collectively paraphrasing everybody, but they're saying this might be my only shot at ownership. And I've had a pretty successful career. Like we talked to people, who, you know, went through multiple exits. Yeah. Right. And they're like, I still don't have enough to come <laughs> close. If I liquidated all my asset, I might get 1% of a team. Yeah. Right. Like that seems crazy. So that, that speaks to the unlikelihood that you mentioned, right? Exactly. And so they're saying, look, I will spend nights and weekends running regression analysis, doing financial models, building websites, just off the chance that there's a sliver of hope that this actually succeeds, which is, which is pretty, pretty awesome. awesome. Can I ask you in the weeds kind of nerdy question of the 4.5 million, how has it been distributed so far in terms of what functions of the, mm. I presume you guys have got legal costs, you know, like yeah. operational costs, like you got to keep the lights on as a, as a co-founder and, and contributor and many others. Right. Um, and then I'll ask a follow-up question, which is what are the, what's the coolest shit that's been done? Oh, wow. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That second part might take a while. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure the exact breakdown per se, but you, you pretty much nailed everything. Obviously there's legal, right? Which <laughs> I mean, obviously there's the, a lot of, it's a complicated topic. So we have, we have really bright minds kind of working through that. Um, operational costs, like you said, things like compensation. We've done a lot of sponsorships actually. So I think one of the, what, like, I think Crossos has so many value propositions to ownership groups and uh, even prospective ownership groups. And one of those is internationalization, right? Like NBA is so global that we try to get into not only charitable work here in the US, but also internationally. Uh, refurbishing courts, throwing block parties. Yeah. We've done stuff in the Philippines. We're looking at Brazil. Um, We did, we're doing something with project backboard who does a lot of court refurbishments. Mm. They're hosting a a teenage basketball tournament in Alaska. I think like in only in a few weeks. So that's really important to us, right? Because that's what it means to be kind of a fan. Like basketball courts and things are so ubiquitous all, all over the world that like, I think going ground up and showing involvement in the communities is, is super important. So we try to do sponsorships, philanthropic stuff as well. It's very much like this is only only a things. DAOs and corporations are radically different in, <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, but that's one thing is when you look at our cost breakdown, it's there's a lot of there's a lot of similarities. You know, we spend on engineering, like you said, keeping the lights on for for you know certain contributors, pretty standard. What are some of the coolest things that we've deployed capital to? Oh man. There's probably a few. The one I want to touch on first is our activation at NFT NYC because I think it was one of the best examples of collective commons coming together to do something really interesting. And I think it kind of shows a DAO superpower in a way. So NFT NYC, for those that don't know, it's 
I think probably one of the most high profile crypto conferences of the year, maybe because it's in New York, maybe because it was NFT related. But I think we in our, our general chat were like, hey, are we doing anything for NFT NYC? We basically had eight, nine strangers that were like, hey, let, let us help come up with an event, right? And so we're like, okay, cool, let's do it. So they all met in our general channel. They started meeting daily. Next thing you know, they're spending all night and weekends getting sponsors, getting location. And I'll never forget, I'm in New York and I don't really know what's going on. I mean, my co-founder and I were like, <laughs> we're like, hey, well, there's an event today. We know bits and pieces. I would joke around with him. He was not involved at all. I helped make some, make some intros and do some things, but they literally did everything. And I remember I joined one call and they outlined the scope of what we can go do. And I remember getting off the call saying, if they do 40% of that, I'll be shocked. It was like dunk contest, install a court, fractionalize the court and sell them as NFTs, <laughs> musical acts, DJs, lights. And I'm like, wow, this sounds insane. And they had 60 days to pull it off. And we show up and I'm like, this could go either way. And I remember walking, it was in the Manhattan Car Club, uh, West Side, New York. And I was looking at it and like mind blown. They pull off an entire three-on-three -three competition. They had all kind of like semi-pro or like top YouTube creators. They had a dunk contest. Like everything was done perfectly. And it just goes to show you like the speed at which you could do that and like the self-sovereignty, which is like, hey, I know sponsorships. I know I can do the technical implementation. They all got together, made it happen. And it was a huge, huge success. I say guys from the NBA came, NBA players, league as well. That is what brought my friend into crypto. That's what brought, you know, other player, NBA players into crypto because everyone was kind of like, I don't know about this thing. And they say, they're like, hey, it wasn't a bunch of nerds talking, you know, talking technical stuff like I thought it was going to be. I was like, you guys are moving basketball culture forward, which is always really, really good to hear because we, like we always say, we were basketball fans before we were crypto fans, right? So we want to, we want to move the entire culture forward. We want to move the entire league forward. So um, that was one of the things that I was like really, really blown away by the execution. But I mean, some some quick ones. Court refurbishments have been have been awesome. We've done a lot of activations in the Philippines, um, which is a thriving NBA market. For those that don't know, one of the fastest growing still uh, over the past couple of years. Um, we've done some really really uh, iconic stuff, in my opinion. I think it's really cool. I mean, we were just talking on an earlier episode about kind of sport as a public good, and yeah, I honestly didn't know that you guys have invested that much of the capital that you've raised into that kind of stuff, which I think is super commendable. And it's crazy because like we were talking about this the other day, like the kind of intersection between sport and Web3 has gotten such a bad rap. Yeah. Because like all the noise is on the speculative financial side of things and stuff like this is sometimes brushed under the carpet or not even talked about, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's funny because we always talk about this. It's It always blows my mind to see, and I, I'm obviously not going to name any particular project, but uh, to see people kind of lead with kind of Web3 and NFTs as the goal. And like, we've always kind of looked at it as, as a means. Mm, like, yeah, cool. Yeah, so it's like, what we really want is is fans are always kind of looked at as a collective in plural, right? They're the people that go into the stadium, spend the money, buy the merch, and then leave. And I think Crowdhouse part of our mission is is drilling into that. Like, how do you go to the person sitting in row double K seat four? Like, sometimes that's a you know a founder, that's a, a someone who owns a marketing agency, someone that loves sport, loves that particular team, and has maybe some free time to help push the team and drive valuation forward analogy we always use is like kind of like a, a hydro plant or like a dam, right? It's like the water was just there doing its thing. And obviously it had, it had a very important use case to keep us alive. And someone 
came along one day and was like, well, what if we took this energy and used it to power a city? Mm. Right. And like, it's, it's not just there. There's more use cases than to just hydrate. Like we is actually an energy source. So we think of that as like fans, right? They're, they're this group collective and I don't know how dams or hydro plant work. I just know mm. that sometimes they keep lights on. Right. And I think that's what our, our sales pitch to owners is like, you have this mass energy. You like, you have a fan base that's passionate and actually has skills to deploy. And we are kind of building the infrastructure as the dam is saying, hey, how do we identify the best talent within the within the fan base? How do we use that talent effectively? And then on the output, we keep your lights on or, and, and you you know have a reduced cost, all the benefits of doing that hydropower. But now it's coming from the fans. They're more involved and more engaged, but also the whole valuation of your team is driving forward because you're getting access to to talent and sometimes finance that you wouldn't otherwise get. And that's really resonating with majority owners, not just in the NBA, but sports all over the world. It's crazy. I've only just thought of this, but you actually have validation in the sense that what has been the biggest thing in like sports over the last five to 10 years, fan content, right? So like now compared to 10 years ago, broadcasters had every bit of like all the eyes, right? Yeah. Now we're in a situation where like, I'm a big Arsenal fan. I don't watch like broad coverage of soccer i go and listen to the guys who breathe this shit you nailed it every single day and like it's really not that far-fetched to say let's go and step take it a step further like uh, arsenal are a perfect example they recently redesigned the entire outside of the stadium you were there the other day and they had input from like four or five hundred fans and now operationally that's difficult to do but the impact it, it gives from a cultural perspective, from a sense of belonging perspective is really important. And I think more and more sports teams, because it's become so commercialized, have to start going back to those grassroots. You absolutely nailed it. So we actually had a conversation sitting across from, from an owner at one point. And we said, we said, it's never been easier to create high quality content these days. Every single team needs to be their own ESPN fan driven. Because to your point, the days of like listening to Max Kellerman and Stephen A. Smith, yeah, I used to do that like eight all years the time. ago. It's when like I first got into the those NBA. days are dying. No one. I'm sorry anymore, yeah. because you're right. Like I want my content skewed to me because that's what that's what media is now. You go on my YouTube subscription and algorithm is is it's all over the map, but it's catered towards me, yeah. no matter how niche it is. Right. Um, Ten years ago, fifteen years ago, that was really hard to do. But you're right. You want to hear the guy yelling and screaming about only Arsenal, but he knows his stuff, right? And you said operationally, that's difficult to do, but that's what we've been working on for mm. the past two years. Yeah, It's like, okay, you need a media. How do I identify the most talented and savvy people that people are willing to listen to? That might be handpicking those folks. That might be voting on those folks, but that's the infrastructure that we've been building, right? That's the whole operational component that we've been tackling since we started. But that means on the output, right, again, with the damn analogy, like the lights coming on that power that is four or five YouTube channels that are fan owned. One's behind the scenes. One more is kind of a talk show analysis. That might be an audio documentary. That might be three podcasts. But the point is, is to bring fans into that ecosystem as a team and, and keep them there. And what the funny part about it is this particular front office was one of the smallest in the league, Right. So in order to do that, everything I just outlined, you might need to hire a team of four or five. That might be 25% of the whole front office. Owners are never going to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if someone on the cap table that's willing to do that, that's invested, like Crosshouse, that's that's our job. That's our responsibility. And so that particular thing, and like, it doesn't stop there. Like, media is just one component. You know, you guys have a, a vested interest, but to make it commercially viable, 
like whether it's a service or content, whatever it may be, sure. it could be not that crazy to like have four or five people that are hired as a representative of the DAO to do that. Absolutely not. No. And I mean, think about it. I think there's, you know, maybe seven or 8,000 of us of total all over like 50% also based outside the U S. So I touched on the international component before it's like, why would, I'm going to pick a, a random team here, but like, why would the Oklahoma city thunder not want a localized content podcast in the Philippines? Like mm. that's exactly what, what they want is like, how do you start? Cause everywhere overseas is very team agnostic. They love players and they love the league they have a hard time relating. They kind of follow plays around, but why would I just randomly be Orlando Magic fan yeah. if I was living in Bangkok, right? Or, or anywhere in the Southeast Asia where basketball is just absolutely exploding. But if you start listening to a podcast around that team and that team does activations in your local town and there's a FaceTime with, with a player, right? Then you start to develop that team affinity, which is really something that, that, that we're tackling too. So we're setting up kind of a network of, of media and outlets all over the world that eventually once we're on the cap table, we can slowly start to drip more of that, that team's content in and start to build that international fan base. All these things have crossed the owner's mind. And it's not to say that, you know, they've never thought of that. I think executing that is, is really, really difficult, right? And putting the people in place to do that. I'm going to ask you a question. Is owning and operating an NBA team as a DAO too crazy an idea? Uh, it's funny. I'm I'm supposed to say no, but it's like, I feel like I go back and forth. There's days where I'm like, absolutely not. Let's do this. Other days I'm like, actually, you know what? This actually, like, what's wrong with me? I might, I might be fully insane. I think when the dust settles there, it's funny because we always joke around. The initial concept actually came from the initial, our very ignorant ideation sessions, right? When we started was all about general management how cool would that be to draft a player you know, or, <laughs> or sign and trade LeBron, right? Um, but when you actually start talking to GMs, you realize like a lot of the GM's responsibility actually is like personal relationships. They know other players. They know players' families. They know other people in front office. They know what everyone else is saying about that player, all exactly. that kind of stuff. So we had that realization. It's like, that might be one of the last things that a, a community should <laughs> yeah, do, 100%, right? Yeah, so, 100%. So we're like, uh, okay, cool. But I mean, that that didn't deter us, like being involved with other decision-making or even, even supplementing that, right? Like I want to highlight, I have a member of our community Discord named Beijing Baller. And Beijing's like a kind of old mathematician, right? Um, and so he's a he's a data analyst and he prepares the scouting report and the draft, uh, draft analysis that we had for the big three. And our coach is Hall of Famer Rick Barry, absolute legend. Our captain is Leandro Barbosa, right? Ring yeah, yeah. with the Warriors and played for the Suns. He sends them their reports and their minds are blown. They're like, wait, this is a community guy that just like does this? And like, just for fun. Yeah, just like, for fun. Yeah. Um, and so like- and Imagine that's like with no resource, right? Or like little resource, for example. Like it's, you know, they're taking a hit on what this would actually cost because they have governance in the DAO probably. And yeah. like the, the remuneration is not that big compared to the quality, you know, that this, that's created. 100%. So, and so their minds are blown and- you know, he's not the only data scientist in the community. Like right now, if Crosshouse joined a cap table of an NBA team, we would 3x most uh, analytics teams in the NBA just by being on the cap table already. That's fucking insane. And so we're like, our pit, you know, pitch, if you will, I'm hesitant to sometimes use that word, but like our value proposition is is very straightforward. Like I have no doubt in my mind that Crosshouse would be the most valuable member of a cap table just by letting us on. With not only, it's not necessarily about the finances because 
these owners can go get money anywhere. It's what comes with it. For all the tech nerds out there, it's like you kind of think of us as like this middleware, right? Where it's like the owners here and the fans are here and there's a, there's a pretty big gap. So what we bring to owners is kind of that trust. Like, oh, you want to supplement your analytics team. We have a PhD candidate. We have a founder. We have someone who's used to intern for the Washington Wizards, right? So we have, we have these things. Would you want those guys to prepare a report and just check it out? Like, you know, I'll implement it, but look. So we have the infrastructure, the implementation, and then obviously what they're going to delegate back to us is these some decision-making power that is not necessarily high impact, right? We're not going to fire the coach, but, you know, can we help decide the city edition jerseys? Any sort of stadium thing like Arsenal, right? It says, can we get a committee of seven or eight people yeah. that actually know what they're doing to do that? And that's really appeasing to a lot of the ownerships. The proverbial light bulb goes off and says, wow, I've never really thought of it like that. I've never really thought of the human capital side of, yeah. of, fan, of fan ownership. Let, let's dig into that a little bit because like, You've obviously, I'm presuming you've spoken to a bunch of owners like here and overseas. Mm -hmm. What have some of the conversations been like generally? Has there been a lot of like, this is stupid or have some of them just instantly got it? That's probably the biggest surprise I've had so far at Krauss is when we actually get, a lot of them are, have been in person. And so like when we're literally across the table from them, how open they are to this general concept and it, it really goes to show you why they're in those positions, right? It, it, it's funny. There's some common themes. They're always willing to admit how little they know about the space, which mm. I think is is really interesting because I'm guilty of this too. You ever get in a conversation and pretend you know more than you do? We all do. <laughs> there's one of the ones that, that are most proactive in saying, hey, listen, I'll be the first to admit, I have no idea what you guys are up to. But so-and-so told me about this. There's some interesting things. I want you guys to explain it. Yeah. And so we, we sit across and tell them and they immediately understand. It's funny because when you talk to people in the front office, someone in, you know, partnerships or ticketing, they'll tell you every reason why it wouldn't work. But we talk directly to the owners. They're like, wow, I've, uh, this is, this is insane in a good way. Right. And so that has been really, really eye opening because, and of course, over time we've, we've tried to build this, not only reputation, but this, this value proposition is really difficult to say no to. Uh, and I think, I think we're mostly there. And so, uh, these conversations have gone really, really well. Verbal offer from the Phoenix Suns. I'm happy to elaborate on a little bit. Um, currently kind of in, I'll say deep conversations with, with one current incumbent majority owner. So again, this is, this is something that we we thought was crazy. We used to think, Hey, if we could just get in front of an owner, that would be a huge win. And I'd say we, we've probably talked to I think four or five now, just just the NBA, a couple more uh, for European soccer clubs, um, football clubs. I'm in the UK. I got to be careful. Um, so so yeah, it's been every single person that we've talked to has been way more receptive than I had would ever have imagined. Talk me through the Phoenix Suns fit for a bit because I remember like, and I'll be damn honest here, read the white paper. I was like, this is the best I've seen so far, but it still feels far-fetched. Sure. And then I saw the Rays. I was like, okay, cool. So those are like the three levels of like my interest in it. I've written about like all of them respectively on, on the newsletter. Talk me through that entire process because that must have been a whirlwind. It was. It's actually, it, it's a really good one because it's it's kind of um, not as straightforward as one would think. So we were, Commodore and I, we'll be the first to admit, our assumption of how to get this done was let's 
go through a very warm connection, get to an owner, sit across from them and really explain our value proposition, kind of like, you know, what we've been doing uh, since, since we started recording. Our assumption was that the more high profile the sale, the less are our odds, right? Because with something that happened with the Sarver situation, it's plastered all over ESPN. Yeah. Anyone with a decent amount of money who's ever wanted to own a team is like, okay, now's my chance. And especially if things are on chain, right? Like, exactly. It's like, how much money do these guys have? I can check it. It's like the, <laughs> yeah, it's like the, yeah. it's like the um, when they tried to buy the uh, Constitution. Yeah. The guy from Citadel was like, let Just, me see how much money they've got. Yeah. And I'll put a dollar on top of that. Yeah. <laughs> front front runner situation. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Public so, blockchains mean... Um, yeah, there's some downsides. There's, there's some downsides. downsides. <laughs> so, so we were like, okay. And then also too, imagine all that noise. And then we get in front of them. And also have to explain to them what we're doing, right? You're like, oh, wait a second. You're not some high net worth individual yeah, or you're yeah. not a private equity fund. You're something kind of in between-ish. So our assumption, which, you know, not to have a spoiler alert, but like our assumption was that that, that would be just really, really difficult to do. So we were kind of, I don't think we, we were like, we're not going to, that's not going to deter us, of course. But hey, let's just not devote all our mental capacity to this. So we started sending some tweets and DMs and things like that. And the CBS article came yeah. out, I think very promptly titled, Who Should Buy the Phoenix Suns? Yeah. Right? Well, who's in the running? Was it? Was it? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Well, it was, it was more catered to like, who would be a should, good oh, fit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, who should do it? Um, and with a, a kind of analysis of like, you know, why. And so we're looking through and it's five names. It's uh, Jeff Bezos, Bob Iger, CEO of Disney. Uh, Floyd Mayweather Jr., <laughs> Shaquille O'Neal, and Krausehaus. <laughs> and I remember seeing that uh, someone sent a link to me with no context, right? It was like, you know, no, uh, you know, oh, hey, check this out, or hey, you guys are mentioned. So I'm scrolling through, and I'm almost also kind of like, why'd you send this? Like, there's a bunch of these articles floating around. And I see number five is Krausehaus. And it was one of the few, too, that was like, hey, this is crazy, this is weird, but I actually think the concept of fan ownership and and what they're doing is really interesting, especially for a team like this. So I just remember, honestly, that, that in hindsight, was probably one of the biggest... We've had to do a lot of our own pats on the back as a collective because we just get a lot of cynicism. Oh, you guys are crazy, this will never work. That was one of the first external validation mm. pieces that that I had in the entire time in Krausehaus, and it just lit a fire under us. We wrote an article about this. Maybe we can link it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I remember reading it. I was I was sending out um, telegrams and stuff and asking for intros to Jeff Bezos. Right, <laughs> and it was like, 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 wait, did you honestly just text me to see if I know Jeff Bezos? Like, no, I don't know Jeff Bezos. Um, but I was like, I was willing to do anything to get in front of of these people. So the first one we actually got in touch with was Bob Iger. We met with. No um, we didn't meet with Bob directly, but we met with his right-hand man who also does a lot of the sports kind of invest. He does a lot of investments in general, but I think Bob's for a while been looking to invest in sports teams. So he he's ahead of that. He had a concept of a DAO, but he thought this is a good, uh, interesting perspective from the entire industry. But he's like, oh yeah, people are spending up DAOs, but they just have no, they just say they're a DAO and they're interested. It's like, have you guys raised any money? And so we're like, Oh yeah, yeah, that was check the chain. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, check either scan. Yeah. Uh, no, so we're like, we're here. Here's what we've done. Here's who we've talked to. Here's some of the things. And he was like, he's like, whoa, you guys are kind of blowing my mind. Yeah, I, yeah, I had yeah. no idea that this was possible, let alone there was someone out here doing it. Um, so 
not too long, maybe two weeks after that interaction, Bob kind of withdrew um, his name. And so we, we continued to we continue to kind of poke around. And so did you guys want to go in with one of these people? Yeah. Got it. Yeah. That makes total sense, right? Because yeah. you obviously can't, ca- unless you raised a shit ton of money, you can't do the whole thing. But it's like, hey, look, why don't you do take full ownership and we'll be the 5% that's super, super. Exactly. Crazy. This whole thing is is attaching ourselves in the early days, attaching ourselves to an owner who really understands Got and, and wants or a us all. owner in this case. Yeah, perspective. Exactly. So the next one we got in talk with, actually because they submitted a bid, they're still kind of NDA. So I can't really give two names, but um, really high profile ownership group. We got in front, some of the team, and I remember after the call, it was kind of, I won't, I won't lie, like during the call, there wasn't a lot of body language or anything like that to include like, oh, this is, this is thing. It's like, oh, I think what you guys are doing interested. And then the call ended with, he goes, this is one of the most mind opening conversations I've ever been a part of. And this is one of the most prominent uh, figures in, in, in tech, right? He's like, this is going to exist. Like, I don't know if it's next year. I don't know if it's in 10 years, but why not us, right? They had a really strong bid. Again, I don't think I can disclose how much, but yeah. um, a really strong bid. They were in really good shape. Um, they We were already ideating on some of the things we wanted to do early on. Like, it was really, really close. And I remember I remember hanging up the call and just, like, screaming. Like, like <laughs> this, is, this is exactly, like, they get it. It's like, this is going to happen. I think it was days later. I think it was, yeah, maybe maybe two days later, we get the Woj notification that uh, Matt Ishbia was going to buy yeah. Phoenix Suns. And actually kind of like, I don't want to say, I don't want to say controversy, but like, because I don't know all the details. So I want to give a full disclaimer. But like, there was kind of rumors that it necessarily didn't go through the the normal bid process. And there was like some other stuff. So um, again, we didn't even get details from the prospective group that we were going to join. But at the end of the day, they 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 didn't win. We still every once in a while catch up with them, maybe about some other opportunities, because mm-hmm. I just love how on board they were. We respect their long careers of what they've done. And so like attaching ourselves to that ownership group would have just been amazing. And there's the door's still open because they're they're a great group. That like verbal of like, hey, like we'd be willing to have you guys join our our group if if we get this done was just um crazy experience. Crazy experience. And what's funny is that I think to really high net worth individuals, particularly billionaires, right? That's a very binary outcome. Did you win the bid or not? And for us, I think we're allowed to count moral victories, you know, in this case, because it's such a long road and requires so much effort that these these verbals here and there, or even meeting with owners, like those are wins. Mm. I mean, like the fact that we're even sitting across yeah. the room for them, representing an online community and discord of 7,000 people is kind of mind blowing. Right, because all their other meetings are with top private equity companies, the Arctos, the Dials, or really, really like household name, high mm. net worth individuals. And I go by Flex, right? Like I'm, I'm just, I'm just a guy who liked basketball. So it's crazy. I know we've we've built a lot, but it's wild. And the fact that they're even receptive to something like this because they see the opportunity um, and what we can achieve and what value we can bring is has just been an amazing experience. It's incredible. Can I ask you a slightly adjacent question? So. I bet you have like three categories or four categories of people. One, I don't understand this. Good luck. Like just generally when you speak to people, right? Yeah. Two, I fucking hate crypto, right? Yeah. And like, I don't want to get anything near that. Yeah. Three, I kind of like this idea, but like why blockchain and crypto? And then yeah. you probably have four, which is, I fucking love this shit. Yeah. Number three, when people are like, why would you use a blockchain for this? What's your usual response? 
Yeah, I think it's fairly straightforward. I think the concepts, and again, I'll use the word the word primitives like NFTs, things things being on chain. I think decentralization is a, a spectrum. There's fully centralized things, maybe fully de- decentralized things. Most projects or groups land somewhere in the middle. But I think the simple fact of We'll use fundraising as an example. There's, there's a lot of reasons, but what Constitution Dow you alluded to earlier, raising, I think, about $50 million, um, in a couple of days. It was funny. When we started Krauthouse, we were battling two main points of, of cynicism, right? One was the NBA will never let you do this, so you should just pack it up. The second thing is how in the world could you ever raise tens of millions of dollars in a short period of time? Literally within weeks, Constitution Dow did that. And now we don't, all of a sudden, almost overnight, we don't get that complaint. So I think fundraising is is really interesting. I think- On-chain treasury management. On, just- on-chain treasury management. I think just online collectives in general and this this concept of access and ownership. Another thing is, is to, I think this is probably the biggest reason we talk about this a lot, but like Web3 has kind of forced us, at least specifically Krauthouse has forced us to really think about what the concept of ownership means. And so our- thought experiment there is we've we've kind of unbundled that way right? we've unbundled ownership into three things there's equity there's governance and there's access right so we think about owning a home right you there those are all three bundled together if you pay cash for a home you you quite literally own the equity right you have access to it you literally have keys to go in and out and then you have governance if you want to redo the backyard or knock down the wall that's your decision um, I think what's really really powerful about web 3 in general and this new concept of ownership is unbundling those those things, mm. particularly in culture-relevant assets like sports. Not everybody in Krauthaus, if we get land on the cap table, can invest in the team from an equity perspective, right? There's accreditation, there's there's all kinds of requirements, but that changes league to league, and you know that that might be specific to the NBA, but not so specific to European football. But the access and governance piece, like belonging in Krauss and maybe owning an NFT, right? I don't necessarily know, I have to know who you are, but like by being involved in the community, you can maybe get discounted merch. You can maybe get courtside seats through participatory activities, right? You look at governance, you might be able to participate in maybe some low to medium impact positions, right? And I think the only really way to do that in a functional, in a global functional way is with some of the Web3 tools. And I think that there's a lot of things, and, and again, we're in the the early innings of what all that looks like. There's new standards um, uh, coming out for uh, these different chains and L1s that I think we'll be able to to utilize. Uh, but I think we were just really interested in the concept of the tooling to allow fans ownership, again, unbundling that word into access, equity, and governance. I think that concept of access, equity, and governance is, is really important. When exactly did you land on that and how? why has it been such an important key three pillars in, in your strategy. Yeah, I think luckily we picked the right place for that, which I think one is sports, but even more specifically the NBA. I think the NBA, I mean, one of our whole thesis, right, is that when people find out we're not here to come in and, you know, change logos and, you know, like I said, fire the coach, draft this guy, we love and respect the NBA. I, to me, I mean, obviously, as a, uh, I'm biased, but I think it's one of the best, if not the best, professional sports league in the entire world. Mm. Right. So, what we want to do is, is make sure we kind of treat it with that kind of respect. So, from a cultural standpoint, there's no one doing things quite like the NBA. Right. Most followed social media account of sports in the world. The players' total f- followership is is, I mean, 10x's um, all the other leagues. 
it's massive and growing. And so I think in other industries or sectors, maybe even like finance, I think the access and governance thing is less important. But when you're talking about like basketball is just a lifestyle. It's these teams are lifestyle brands. They're not something that you just walk in the stadium, watch a game for 48 minutes and then leave. So if you don't have that equity component or that, you know, financial upside, there's still a lot of value in the access and governance thing that I think is, is really, really interesting. So I think that's what attracts a lot of people to Krausehaus. If they cannot invest directly, well, what else can they do? I think being closer to the game as a fan is something that is not only been a part and ubiquitous across leagues all over the world, but it's something that we've always wanted. In fact, pro- probably even overdue. Like that entryway in being closer to the game and to the teams that they support, I just think it's, I think it's, I think it's about time. Let's shift gears a little bit. What have been some of your biggest challenges that you face so far? Oh my gosh, we're not even in part two. How long have we got? We're not even in check part the, two. Check the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a lot. I think um, building in public requires, I think, a lot of patience. It's really complex. It requires some thick skin. But this is what we signed up for. I think the only way to do this, a lot of people... Again, I won't name any names, uh, but even looking outside of sports, but looking around, a lot of things that I see don't necessarily need to be DAOs at all. I've had countless conversations of helping people out. Oh, I want to start a DAO around XYZ. And after they get done explaining it to me, I'm like, and just spin up an LLC and never look back, right? It's, it's, they're, they're very difficult. I think when you deal with human coordination, we talk about first mover advantage a lot. There's also first mover disadvantage. We don't have great tools but we're, we grew pretty fast. Um, we have a mission. So we don't have the luxury of sitting back and let, watching other people what they do. We, we have to blaze the trail. That can be pretty difficult. I don't think the tooling's great. I think the community sometimes, not our specific, I'm talking Web3 globally, there's ups and downs, right? And I think it's every kind of DAO operator responsibility to build that infrastructure to allow people to make connections as soon as possible, retain, make sure that they're giving all the value for, for token holders. And that's just not an easy thing to do. I mean, like I said, it requires a lot of patience. It's really complex. I don't know if we have the right tools, but if we don't tools aside, not using that as an excuse, I think developing that infrastructure, like we talked about, uh, it's not easy. Like you're going to make a ton of mistakes. Mm -hmm. I think the one thing that we've been pretty good at, not common or as, as founders, but I think just cross house in general is that we're very diligent at trying to adapt and iterate on infrastructure as fast as we can. You know, like we're going to like knowing that you're going to make a ton of mistakes, but how fast can you fix those and how fast can you iterate is something that we, that we kind of obsess over. So yeah, I think long story short, there's problems every which way, you know, you, you look decision-making is, is hard and sometimes slow. I think that onboarding new people joining, how fast can they get up to speed? I think that's, I think that's, that's really bad. There's, there's things, but we're, we're, we're making strides. Luckily from my vantage point is because I, I, I talk a lot with kind of sense makers in the community that are either DAO operators or contributors. And I do kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel. There's a lot of really smart people working on fixing these problems. So I'm highly optimistic, but it's not to say that they don't come with their own set of challenges. I mean, you touched on this briefly. DAOs in sports haven't really worked well so far. Mm-hmm. I think we can both agree on that as two folks that have been ingrained in like deep into this thing for sure. the last like couple of years. What makes Krauthaus different to a lot of those that have not done as well so far? I'll start with what I think we do 
pretty well. I think the one thing that I've seen us do is we've just really, really been diligent about, about quality, Mm. right? Like putting off a token until I think it was useful and it was necessary. And I think not worrying about vanity metrics, like how many people are in the discord, how many Twitter followers we have. People are actually shocked to figure out how few people are in our discord, right? We just like, how do we make, how do we do the most with as little resources as possible? That was just focusing on, okay, when we identify a top talent, how do we keep them in the community? How do we deliver the best experience possible for them? And then how do we scale in a very, you know, in a very thoughtful way? Another thing too is, I mean, this is going to kind of sound um, cliche with like a lot of founders, not even, not even web business in general, but we just kind of obsess over value. Like the whole time, everyone had a point, right? Everyone was like, why would a majority owner listen to you guys, right? And I think one thing that we do different is when I look across the board at the other ones is they all kind of went with that, I mean, to their credit, where we originally thought from perspective of like general management, let me, you know, I want to fire the coach. I want to sign this guy, right? And they were like, wait, hold on a second. Like, what do they need? You know, there's some damn good GMs out there in the NBA, Do they need us? Maybe not. But what do teams actually need? So when we finally get in front of owners, we say, hey, look, based on our conversations and what we know, you could use help here. And here's how we could provide that. And I think that totally revolutionized our whole perspective. It's not about getting a bunch of members. It's not about raising a ton of money. It's about we want to be the most value additive group on your cap table, hands down. And we spent, you know, countless hours ideating you know, proverbial whiteboard sessions, right? Like just trying to figure out how that's possible. Mm. And I think that's what we landed on. And we were joking, I think even before rolling was every single time I do that, it's like front office, majority owner, they all say, wow, this is nothing like what I thought it was. Mm. I thought you guys wanted to come in and mess things up. Mm-hmm. You know, I think they think of kind of like maybe like Wall Street bets, right? Like <laughs> let's get let's get uh, a billion people to just step in and just like hostile takeover. And we're just like, it's actually the exact opposite. In fact, day one, we're not expecting anything from you. I think it's a big celebration that we even, you know, pulled this off. But then, you know, in a couple months time, you say, hey, is this something you guys can help with? Hey, I've been thinking a lot about this. Can you guys do a research project on it? Like slowly, de- let us prove ourselves, right? And like, I know uh, using kind of a sports analogy here, it's like there's a coach, Morgan Wooten. He's actually, I think one of the few high school basketball coaches in the US that's in the Hall of Fame. And I used to go to camp every year. He was like, one of the biggest misconceptions is that the five best players on a basketball team start. He says, I have probably the most talented guy starts, probably the best scorer, but then the best rebounder starts, the best defender starts, the best playmaker starts. Right. So like you have all these things and like, that doesn't mean that they're the most talented or the best scores. The five best scores don't start. Right. And I was like, we want to be the rebound guy on the cap table, right? The sixth man or the sixth man. Right. Or we want to be the assist guy. Like, where do you need help? We're not trying to come in and, and be and run the entire organization. And you have like, from a talent perspective, you have so much resource. You can plug in to be the rebounder. To be the assist guy. Exactly. To be the scorer. Exactly. it needs to be. Yeah, we want to be, I mean, like the Dennis Rodman analogy comes to mind, right? Which is like, he knew he couldn't shoot a lick, but he's like, I'm going to make sure I get every rebound, right? And like, that's it. Like, do you have someone on your cap table that's Dennis Rodman? Do you have a John Stockton, right? And like, that's that's our kind of whole MO. Going back to your original question, I don't know if a lot of of other projects have quite thought about it like that. 
I think it was more kind of the high level, what it means to be an owner. Um, I just think that that's going to take so long. You know, we're in this, this, this might take 20 years, you know, it might take 10. I think that the way that it's going, it's going to be a lot faster than that, but we don't expect it to happen today. So what can we do, you know, today-ish to set us up for that future? And then the last question on this, I guess, and what are the projects in, in the sports web three world have inspired you guys? Oh, interesting. Um, I think one immediately jumps out and that's links. I really like what, what they've done. I think they've been thoughtful as they go. Like they continuously roll things out at, at a nice interval, at a nice pace. Again, the common denominator is like high quality. It's high quality. Yeah. I think almost, I'll even use the word envious. Their partnership program is amazing, <laughs> right? Like I think, I think Top Golf, Callaway, if I'm not mistaken, right? Um, so immediately adding value, like adding value right away, I think is is great. They've achieved, I guess, the uh, it's the first step, and I think their broader mission of owning a bunch of courses. But they recently bought a course. I think Spyglass is it called? Uh, Spay Bay. Spay Bay. Okay, yeah, Spyglass. <laughs> that would be quite the yeah yeah yeah. Uh, Spay, Spy Bay. Yeah, and I've got a chance to meet almost all of them, either in person or remotely. And sometimes I think sometimes even even Twitter DMs, but. That one easily easily jumps out. I, I like. I really like what they're doing. Um, also got some some NBA guys in there. I think Steph is a is a holder. Uh, JJ Redick, if I'm not mistaken. So they're firing on a lot of different cylinders, and I just think they've gone about it in a in a really good way. Well, it's been amazing speaking to you so far, and uh, we'll be back shortly after this break. Uh, but before we do move on to part two, uh, where we look a bit about the future, I need to remind you that this podcast is supported by the HBAR Foundation, who are an ecosystem accelerator of Hedera, the most used sustainable enterprise-grade DLT for the decentralized economy. Together with industry-leading use cases and globally renowned partners, the foundation is actively scaling Web3 consumer engagement across the metaverse, gaming, DeFi, regenerative finance, and beyond. Welcome back to the show. Um, Let's get straight back into it. Let's do it. Otherwise, you know, could be a Joe Rogan type like, three, <laughs> yeah, hour, yeah. three hour podcast. Is the end goal for you folks to simply own and operate a team or is there more to it? Yeah, as crazy as it sounds, I think there's there's way more to it. It's so funny. My, my head just rushed with all these like thesis and theories that we have long term. I, I don't know where to start. I'm going to try to do this as, as concise as possible. But we've talked about this a few times. Like, there's more to being a fan than there is to just being a customer. Mm. It's, 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 this is just a very different experience. And I think the general direction that we're heading is more bottoms up. We talked about this in media. You want to feel, I think there's like a human deep behavioral psychology kind of emotion that when you're a fan of something, you are part of something like bigger than yourself. I think that doesn't get talked about enough. Like when you watch Arsenal play, like as you move up through the tables or or uh, compete for a cup, right? It's like, it's part of your identity is doing that as well, right? It's not just you're a fan of a game. It, it, it kind of doesn't make sense that I'm watching now much younger men play a game and like I'm emotionally, psychologically invested into the outcome. It sounds ridiculous, right? I think Kraushaus is kind of what it means to be a fan. So like owning, I think is a component of that. But I think we also are trying to build something more lifestyle, right? I don't think it's out of the question if we got into apparel, right? If we became a media company, it's like, there's, I think a lot more facets that are, that are going on. There's a really great article uh, by one of my favorite writers. His name's Toby, but he wrote life after lifestyle, Mm. next wave of like consumer products. And 
one of his big avocation is that, you know, culture starts from the bottom, right? Culture starts from individual sharing ideas. Gradually it moves up and gets kind of commercialized. And, you know, it used to come from the Coca-Colas and the Nikes. And then we saw the direct-to-consumer revolution in, in the 2000s, 2010s. And he thinks that kind of the next one is going to come from these online collectives and communities, right? We have people that want to, that are designing apparel. We have people that are creating podcasts. Uh, we have people that are uh, building technical products, right? right? And so like Krauss is not just an ownership vehicle. Of, of course it is, but I think it's actually much, much broader than that. I think it is a, a, a social collective and that might mean people working together, like I said, to build, to build software products that mean you know, meetups in, in, in Paris to catch a game. Like it's, it's much more than just, than just the ownership. It's, it's an, it's an entire brand of everything that comes with it. What started as, Hey, let's go buy an NBA team, I think has evolved to have potential to be much more than that. I want to ask a slightly controversial question, but like, do you think community first businesses can work? I know that sounds strange because we're talking about DAOs here, but can you reconcile the kind of down members wanting to see something happen or some upside with creating a sustainable business? Yeah, it's, it's a good question and something that we've thought about, like, I think more than we like to admit. I mean, it's something that I probably think about daily. I do. I think sometimes it's easy to go back in history saying, hey, these have never really worked. They won't mo work moving forward. I think there's a few misconceptions in that and a couple like uh, fallacies, which is, I think we have new tools now. I think one of the things we talked about, you know, a means to an end, I think crypto and Web3 provide new tools that we haven't had. And, you know, we've talked about that at length. Another thing is, I think a lot of it have been kind of primitive governance structures, right? I think about this all the time, like what it means to make decisions. I think one person, one vote is like as primitive as you can get. I think one token, one vote is, is pretty damn primitive. But like, for example, we want to redesign our Krauss website, right? We all vote on that. One token, one vote, one person, one vote. That's, that's totally broken. It doesn't really make sense to make that kind of decision. Mm -hmm. What you should do is like every person that votes, right? Do you have an engineering background? Do you have a design background? How long have you been in the community? What's your reputation amongst your peers in the community? All that stuff should be fact. Like, the decision-making should be based on parameters mm. and not just the fact that I'm a human being or the fact that I have tokens. Yeah. And I think what excites me is that there are a lot of people moving in that direction. So when we get that better decision-making as online collectives and we get those better governance structures put in place, I do think community-led things can work because now you're either delegating votes or incorporating a lot more input mechanisms to make good decisions on behalf of the collective decentralized meritocracy exactly and so we really haven't had that we certainly haven't had that in pre-internet era why would we and and so like there wasn't a lot of like you had these kind of pockets of decision making which i mean has got us pretty far obviously there's problems in society today but like also you look around there's a lot of good advancements that we've had but i think we're in the, entering that next era right where you can do it maybe algorithmically you can do it based on a set of parameters and i think that those kind of things that the kind of decision making gets me excited about the future so have they worked so far there's not too many great examples but can they work or will they work uh i think so i think so you've created like such a strong brand as krauthaus i think it's really recognizable as you said high quality you guys have gone for like media products and like at one point from the outside, I was like, these guys are pivoting from their mission to like 
a media company. I think that's pretty smart if they can't buy an NBA team. But actually, it's been part of the plan this whole time, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. I think um, coming from a not a media background, right? I think media is kind of one of the, it's kind of the new tool. Actually, talk about this this theory a lot. Um, I think it's so easy to produce products and services these days. You look at what's going on with ChatGPT. You look at the no-code movement. 20 years ago, taking payments, spinning up your own server, and making a website, I mean, that was months and months of work. Yeah, legacy-defining for a brand, you know? Exactly. And so now, with a couple no-code tools in ChatGPT, you can get up and running in a weekend with no engineering experience to, to boot. So, right? So, like... It's like we're entering in a very interesting time frame. So what is the only thing left? I think one of the only thing left that is possible is distribution, right? That's one of the few things that that those kind of tools can't do. You have to have people using your product and service. And I think one of the best means to do that is creating high quality content um, and humanizing. I think in a world that becomes more digital, I think people are going to look for more humanized type type brands. Um, not to say that you can't use those tools. I'm a big fan of all the tools I mentioned. But I think it's it's really important to be able to connect with people. And I think you do that through content creation. So should every team be their own ESPN? Should uh, should all do that? Like, absolutely. Yeah. From that media perspective, we were talking about it earlier, right? Like, you want the content that's as granular about your specific want, right, as a fan. How useful do you think that would be from the Krauss perspective when hopefully you eventually get to being part of a, a cap table mm-hmm. to kind of influence, grow the brand, get more affinity in a globalized way. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, I think it's wildly important. Right now, I think with media, that's really interesting. It's, I think it's still very much based on, you know, total followership, total views. Um, but what I could see happening is if you are interested in a specific team's, you know, cap table or the business side of things, there should be a podcast just for that. Right. And I think really the only way to do that is if you have a community, you identify people that are, you know, we'll call it subject matter experts in that and people that are willing to to grow and, you know, earn either fiat or a digitally native token to produce that content. You don't need a ton of listeners or a ton of viewers. You just need quality ones. Mm. Um, and I think the first couple of teams or leagues to do that will be at a strong, strong competitive advantage. And then I want to shift here slightly for you, if you were starting from scratch, would you do anything differently? Oh, interesting. Um, I don't know. I'm. I'm. I think I'm going to probably use a non-conventional uh, answer here, and I would say it's really kind of tough to argue with the progress. I think I'm kind of like a don't look back kind of guy in general. Have we had immense challenges? Have we had kind of low points for sure? But I I want to look at it quite simply and say you know. If you told me that in roughly two years time that we'd be as far along as we are today, there's no way I'd believe you. Uh, so sure, there's there's some things that we probably would have done differently. One of the things, see, even one of the things that comes is the crowdfund, um, because it was on Mirror, we were kind of, I don't want to say limited, but we were kind of at the mercy of Mirror's smart contract, mm. which, you know, as we scale may or may not be useful but then you look back it's like how can you complain about selling out of your yeah. nft yeah, you know yeah, what yeah, i mean yeah. so um we knew that that would be what we would be up against if, if that time came which which it which it hasn't it's actually been great even that tokenomics for the original has, has worked um today obviously with with some drawbacks but like nothing's nothing's perfect in web3 right now 
but yeah, so it, it's really, it's really tough to say. Now, would I want to go back and do it again? That's a different question. <laughs> <laughs> would I want to start over and just live the exact same life? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if my psyche can handle it. Um, but I can't go back. I, I feel, I feel weird going back and, and saying, oh, right here. Yeah, because you never know the, the, it's like the it's like the butterfly yeah, effect. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. go back and slightly tweak your crowdfund. Like you know, am I you know living on the street now? Like when I fast forward, like I don't know. But I think I can't really complain up until up until now. Yeah. Um, and I try not to. In fact, even when you asked that question, I was like, I don't think I've ever thought about that. Yeah. I don't think I've ever gone back and say, oh, I wish we would have done this slightly different. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure there are. Um, but you're right. You don't know how that affects it moving forward. Yeah. And then maybe asking this in a different way, but like, what are the, some of the things that you thought were going to be really easy that ended up being really difficult? Wow. Uh, yeah, lots actually. Yeah. I, that's a, that's a laundry list. I don't want to say, of course it's no indiv- individual, but I think collective decision-making, I think things like identifying certain talent committees, subcommittees, how to work, these things that I don't want to say sound basic, but things that get overlooked of like just the pure operation and group decision-making. And I'm not talking about like specifically proposals. I'm talking about like new people join, their name is like Shrimp Boy and they have like a PFP avatar, right? And you're like, but then you, so you like have to get to know each one, where can they fit? Like that, that whole part from the, the life cycle of a journey from start to finish and then segmenting that cohort and and getting that, you know, again, back to the damn analogy is like getting as much power out of the community as possible is really, really difficult. Um, it's not about joining a weekly call or weekly syncs, like group decision-making and effort pushing. And everyone, there's a lot of talent in the community and everyone has different ideas of where this should go. We talked about this at the, at the top of the recording, right? Like some people have a more top down approach. Other people want to go bottoms up. No one's really right. No one's really wrong. So we just have to put the best foot forward and like double down on the experiments that are working. It's just been really, really tough to do. And like, of course, we're going to make mistakes. Like that's just, this has never been done before, Um, especially in a league as as prestigious as the NBA. Um, And so we're, we're not breaking any rules, but we're bending a lot. Right. So uh, we're trying to, we're trying to figure out exactly, exactly what to do. So that's just that the the human component of a DAO, I I vastly underestimated uh, big time. I love that phrase that you mentioned earlier, which is first mover disadvantage. Yeah. I think that is true in crypto more than anything. We're seeing it more broadly, right? Like Wall Street coming for crypto. Let's let the SEC deal with Coinbase and Binance. Let's get in through above that, right? With right. our like more legitimate products. For sure. And you see it with um, Binance in itself, right? Like Coinbase were the market leaders for ages and they were competing with a Bittrex or whoever else. Binance came out of nowhere, IPO craze sucked up all the volume and like the one thing that i think is you know someone could replicate this and do it faster better more well capitalized but the one thing they can't buy is the culture and i think on one hand you do have the first move a disadvantage because you're trying to like make the rule because you go but like they can't buy the cultural aspect no. which is which is most important really right exactly exactly and that's that's really something that we're that we're leaning into it's funny um we joke around a lot about this, but I see some of the bit, and not to knock the individual, of course, because there's some really talented people out there. But um, I noticed that the metaverse division at like an IBM or something like that, when you kind of hear, read their publications, it's like, oh, um, they're just thinking about these things very differently than someone like us who's just starting at the, at the, at the very bottom. But you're totally right. Like you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place with that mm. one is that, you know, we were, we were early, which has a lot of advantages. Um, but now 
in every sense of the term, we are kind of like blazing the trail in some regards. So um, certainly people get to look at the either mistakes or some issues that we're having and, and adjust. But it's funny, if you would ask me how I thought about that before I started, I think it would be a lot more nerve wracking. I've actually grown to kind of love it, which is like, once you embrace the fact that this has never been done and you're kind of blazing that trail and accepting the fact that there's the, you know, you're going to make a few wrong turns. It is kind of motivating because I feel like there's a lot of energy behind the, the pressure of figuring this out. We're actually talking to someone at the, at the front office and this, this kind of always stuck with me. Um, but they said, Hey, when you guys pull this off, I think you're looking at one of the biggest headline items in sports business over the past decade or so. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. The fact that like, you know, you started with a, a public tool like, like discord and actually got a few fans landed on, on the cap table, uh, for an NBA team through the value proposition and unique selling points that you guys are able to deliver, uh, will be certainly like uh, dog ear, right. in in the book of NBA business history. Right. And I was like, wow, I've never, thought of it like that, but it has a point. So that that's that's super motivating. And, and again, the first mover disadvantage comes with that territory. You don't know you're making history while you're doing it. <laughs> exactly. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, let, let's move more broadly a little bit. Like what is exciting you most about the space right now? Oh man. You know what? I'm in such a, I'm sure you are too. I'm in such a, a vacuum when I pull up Twitter. It's like, it's sports and crypto. <laughs> that's it. So part of me thinks that's the only thing going on yeah. in the entire world. But I do kind of get some indirect and trickle down stuff of what's going on in the broader community. And what I'm most excited about today is I can't point to a product or a founder or even some sort of like crypt, new crypto category or primitive that's kind of emerging. but what I see now more than I've ever seen before is consumer ideation. Mm. And one thing that we're kind of obsessed with, and I think you are too, based on our conversations is like, how do you make the experience more accessible for the masses? You know, it's kind of ubiquitous. Everyone always talks about onboarding the next million people to, to crypto or whatever, which... Or the billion if you're like a serial marketer on LinkedIn or whatever, exactly. right? Yeah, <laughs> onboarding yeah, yeah. the next billion people. Yeah, to, you can tell yeah. I'm not a marketer because I only use million, you know? I'm, I'm like the, the small thinker with a million and not billion, totally. But uh, I was thinking like, I was like, yeah, that's like a common question. Maybe it's the wrong question. Um, it's really about the experience. It's really about about doing that. And what I see is a lot of discourse on just making the experience better, which will naturally, like you think about to the, I draw a lot of comparisons to early internet of becoming fascinated Mm. by that whole history. And I think what's very different about bringing people onto the internet versus bringing people onto crypto or web three right now is that it was people's outlet that they couldn't get IRL. You know, like if you were a fan of a certain video game or even a certain board game, right? Like people would flock to these forums knowing that there's people all over the world that they can relate to and they can have a joined shared experience. And that forced people to get online. No one knew how to set up a computer. No one knew how to, how to get internet access, but like they hear from a friend, oh, there's people talking about XYZ. There's things to go here. There's like news to check out. And it kind of forced them to, we don't have that forcing function right now. We need people to say, hey, I want this so much. I'm willing to deal with kind of rough UX to to get there until it works itself out, which is totally what the internet was early days. 
And I see a lot of ideation on what that could be. Hmm. Like I said, I wish I could point to a company doing something or, a, you know, a, a thought leader, a founder. Um, but I just see a lot of discussions of people really, really trying, getting in arguments, right? But like what that does is that it forces us to think about, you know, that next million or in some cases billion, depending on who you talk to, but getting people on onboarded. And so from the consumer crypto ideation standpoint, I see a lot of good ideas flowing around, which mm. makes me excited because that's, that's the thing I can kind of sit back and, you know, if someone makes an advancement in crypto, we're, we're all over it. Yeah. Like that's our incumbent advantage perspective. I have a good vantage point, but uh, I, I'm just excited because I think there was a, a lot of money still flowing into infrastructure as the safe bet. But I draw a lot of comparisons to some of those. I don't know if you've I've seen a YouTube documentary on these Chinese like ghost cities, right? Like massive metropolitan areas with not a single person living in any of the buildings. And I'm like, that's to me kind of what the infrastructure play is right now. It's like these crazy complex DeFi products built on Cosmos. I'm not picking on Cosmos, but like it's all these other chains where I'm like, do they have the throughput to even make that worthwhile? Like you need the consumers, right? And so obviously I'm biased, but I think the consumer has fallen behind. And there's some good ideations on on how to how to catch that back back up and bring you know your everyday I don't want to say retail but everyday just consumer into into that world. And then conversely, what do you think is the most overhyped thing right now in oh, this space? Man, you're going to get some spicy takes out. <laughs> yeah, of give me idea. give me one. <laughs> give me uh, one hot take. I actually kind of just alluded to it. Yeah. Uh, actually, it's as you've probably seen. I think a lot of the uh, venture and some of the investments has taken a huge hit. I have a lot of friends in venture, right? So it's not, there's nothing against them, but, um, and it makes total sense. But I think when I do see plays, it, it is around the infrastructure stuff and building on kind of different chains and not to say that they shouldn't be invested in. There's some awesome progress there. I just think as a collective, we need to worry more about the experience and getting a lot of people, uh, a lot of people on board. Yeah, there's a lot of investment on the infrastructure and then like, not the aggregation, but the, the layer that sits on top of the consumer apps, which is really interesting. So like, we still need to build the the, the fat in the middle. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. And so, um, and I still still see a lot of conversation around that infrastructure or um, things like that, but like, we just need people using it. And I think, again, I always talk about, it, I want to be abundantly clear, like I, there's, we need progress in infrastructure, but it's funny, it's like, we're kind of attached to the hip take something, I guess, more recent of like Apple and, and the App Store, right? Like so many people were on their phone and then they launched the App Store and they had to immediately get a huge developer community. But then that flywheel immediately started taking effect, right? People spending more time on their phone, which led to more developers, right? Which led to more people getting iPhones and spending even more time on their phone. Now that might be a, a bad thing, right? But that flywheel that took off, the developers need to be there. Apple needs to be, uh, you know, on top of things as far as the infrastructure goes, which led to the consumer. And again, you get that you get that feedback loop. We're over-indexed on, on one side right now. Listen, that's a complex topic. There's probably a lot of reasons for that and a lot of different opinions. But I just wish I would see kind of some more dedication to that application layer. And let's finish up on something more directly, Krauthaus, again. What does the roadmap look like for you guys from now on? Yeah. So I think, as we kind of alluded to, I think one thing that's been awesome to watch uh, from a particular vantage point is just like we've talked about a few times on the podcast of the crypto primitives. Sports has a lot of primitives too, right? There's there's ticketing, there's a roster, typically there's a stadium, there's sponsorships. So one thing that gets us excited is that the infrastructure we're building, the kind of the human infrastructure we're building 
could cut horizontally across a couple different sports and leagues all over the world. So again, we talk about that lifestyle component. It's like, should we limit ourselves to basketball? I don't, I don't think so. I think we should, we should go to as many sports as possible. Um, we have an awesome editing team, like video and audio. It's like, does it matter whether that's a basketball podcast or a football podcast? Like not really. Right. So like building that team out that is kind of vertically integrated, but also could be, uh, cut horizontally, like I said. So Crosshouse, I think is like more of a kind of a, a lifestyle brand where wherever you are in the world, you can kind of have the the benefits of either access, equity, and governance in particular teams. And it's really more about that human connection, right? I think, I think Crosshouse being the mechanism to meet new fans, uh, have shared upside and reciprocity in sports and teams that they love, and also, you know, continue to push the culture of sport forward. Again, not even mentioning Web3 one time. It's like, I think, take the NFT NYC example, everything we're doing. I think we want to ingrain ourselves just in, in sports culture and move the entire thing forward from, from a human element. We see Web3 as the means to do that, but I think it's a lot bigger than just, than just ownership. 12 months from now, is there anything that you really want you folks to have done that you would consider like a failure if you don't get there? Yeah, this is the easiest one yet. Uh, we want to be on the cap table in the NBA team. Yeah, in the next 12 months. And I, th- I think we can do it. I have a realistic shot, I think on a, a co- maybe a couple different fronts, but I would look back on the next, uh, you know, a year from today. Uh, and if we don't have that, I'll be, um, I'll be disappointed. We'll get you back on in a year to, to see if that's happened because uh, be awesome if you can. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for listening or watching whatever medium you're, you're by. Flex, where can people find out more about you and, and, and Krauss yeah, so you can find me on Twitter. Uh, it's Flex Chapman with two X's. For some reason, Flex Chapman was already taken. So, so two two X's. Crosshouse Dow on Twitter as well. Twitter has Linktree. You can check out Discord, OpenSea Link, everything like that. Yeah, we're we're everywhere. But those those two places in particular, and probably drop them in the show notes or something like that. Thank you for having me. I'm not just. We talked about this at length, but I think what you're doing with your with your newsletter, Sporting Crypto. I, I joked, but like, check my open rates. <laughs> I have to be around 100%, but no, I mean, obviously I'm biased, but you know, these are my, these are both my worlds. And I think what you do to kind of not only bring people together, but even share that, that information and in a, in a distributed fashion like that and to see its growth has been awesome. So I'm welcome to come back anytime that you'll have me, but I just love what you've been doing. No, I really appreciate that, man. And on that note, you can find uh, Sporting Crypto, uh, the newsletter at sportingcrypto.substack.com. If you're not subscribed to this podcast already, wherever you're watching, uh, even on YouTube, please do subscribe, give us a like, leave a comment, let us know what you thought about this episode. And uh, you can find me at Pep Berisha on Twitter, P-E-T-B-R-I-S-H-A. You can find Sporting Crypto at underline Sporting Crypto. Uh, You can find me and Sporting Crypto on LinkedIn also. And just remember that none of what we have said during this show is financial business advice and this content is for informational purposes only web3 is underpinned by crypto and crypto is volatile meaning you can lose money if you are buying these assets personally or as a business where we are recording right now in the uk the majority of crypto asset companies are unregulated 